From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. I will make no empty promises here. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson is back for our regular climate and weather chat. He simply cannot say what awaits us this fall and winter. With this massive El Nino that's developing, the warm water in the Pacific, it's kind of a crapshoot as to what's going to happen. And with the changes in climate, most of the experts are saying, we're not really sure. He can say why Colorado has had a record year for severe weather, tornadoes, hail. He'll also talk about the role of climate change. Then, her mother marched on Washington 60 years ago with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, a daughter returns. Here we are again 60 years later with some of the same issues, which is disturbing. You know that gift you just made to CPR? You might be able to double it. How? Well, if your company has a matching gift program, you can ask them to double it. If this program is available to you, don't leave that money unclaimed. Once you've submitted your matching gift request, please let us know. Add to your investment in Colorado Public Radio. There's a matching gift company search engine and information at cpr.org slash giftmatch. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been an extraordinary year for severe weather in Colorado. Our climate team crunched the numbers for hail, thunderstorms, and tornadoes. This year, 1,400 storm reports. Last year, 500 or so. It's the busiest in a decade. That's where we'll start our regular conversation with Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He joins us regularly to discuss climate and weather. Hi, Mike. It's nice to be with you again, Ryan. To cast these numbers a little differently, we had nearly as many storm reports in June as all of 2022. What is going on? This year, we had a cooler than average summer. We've had about 25 days, I think, of 90 or better. We have not hit 100. And that's because we've had a northwesterly jet stream flow for the bulk of the summer, which brings cold fronts through the area. And with those cold fronts, we get severe thunderstorms. So starting in early May, I think it was on the 3rd when we had 26 tornado warnings in one day, which was more than I issued for all of last summer on through June and July. And right now we're in the midst of heavy rain potential this afternoon across much of the state because of the remnants of a tropical storm. Yeah. Why don't we talk about this cooling period? Well, maybe first we could talk about the heat. Yeah, let's talk about the heat. We are getting a bit of a reprieve from it. We have had it locally, Ryan. And that does not mean the globe is not getting warmer from climate change because many areas just to the east of us have had a searingly hot summer from the Midwest all the way down across the Gulf Coast. Heat advisories and warnings just about every single day. So we've been very lucky. We've had the rain. We've had the cooler weather. Unfortunately, that rain and cooler weather has also been accompanied by tornado warnings and hail. Okay, really good local context there. Still, stepping outside earlier this week felt like getting a bear hug from a toaster. And (laughs) inside, it's been miserable without air conditioning. Here's a fourth grade teacher in Jefferson County who wants to remain anonymous. She told me on Wednesday, the AC in her classroom was broken. 
well, it hasn't been below 80 all week. Um, it's gotten up to 89 in my classroom. My teammate has been up to 91, and the teacher down the hall has been up to 94 in their classroom. We have had issues where if the air is blowing, it's blowing hot air into our classroom. The kids are miserable. We've had a couple of bloody noses, a lot of headaches, stomach aches, and just struggling to stay with me in a lesson because they are so stinking hot. You and I have talked about this in the past, but, you know, there was obviously a good stretch in Colorado as homes were being built where air conditioning wasn't de rigueur. When we first moved out here in 1991, the realtor asked us in a home we were building, do you want to put in AC? Because uh, historically, a lot of people choose not to. And we put it in at the time because our son who was uh, five, had asthma and allergies, and we thought it would be better to put it in. But even then, just that amount of time, people still didn't necessarily do it. I think now they don't even ever ask that question. Hmm. Do, do I have it right that Denver might have set a record of 99 this week? We did have some record highs. We did have 99 earlier this week, and that's been the second time this summer we've hit 99 for a, a daily record. But the more important record that we had earlier this week was a morning low of 73, which typically at night it cools off into the 50s or low 60s here. 73 was the warmest morning low temperature that we've ever had in the month of August, and second only to 77 degrees on the 3rd of July back in 1881, which still stands as the warmest overnight low temperature. So that was noteworthy. Do these current cooler conditions spell anything for fall? What What's the outlook? Well, with this massive El Nino that's developing, the warm water in the Pacific, it's uh, kind of a crapshoot as to what's going to happen. Because the Pacific is a big place, and exactly where that pool of warm water sets up changes how the jet stream flows. Typically, an El Nino fall into winter would bring us chances for a, maybe a big snow. I mean, the 1997 October blizzard was during an El Nino. The 2003 March blizzard was during an El Nino. So it may be that we'll get one big snowfall this year. And typically, El Nino years favor the southwestern part of the state with heavier moisture uh, as opposed to the northern mountains. Each one is a little bit different, but this one is setting up to be such a big event. And with the changes in climate, most of the experts are saying, we're not really sure. Huh. That's the sort of instability that climate change, global weirding, as one scientist. And even with the hurricane season, the sea surface temperatures are so warm, they may overcome Something that we oftentimes get with El Nino, which is a shear, uh, a wind shear in the atmosphere that tends to suppress hurricanes. But I noted that the folks up at CSU at their Tropical Storm Forecast Center, which is weird that we have it here in Colorado, <laughs> but the hurricane experts up there have upped their forecast of how many major hurricanes we may have this year. I'd like to look outside Colorado for a moment at, well, jaw-dropping climate catastrophes. The fires in Maui, a hurricane that reached my desert hometown, Palm Springs, California. Mike, my mother remains in disbelief. The homes that have been destroyed here with mud flows that are four feet tall from nowhere, that's not vacant lots or 
hillside homes. It's just astounding, astounding. A new term that's being used to describe this uh, is compound disasters, extreme weather amplifying other effects, and that could include human errors with things like disaster response. When it comes to climate change, have we moved past the mitigation stage to the adaptation stage? Absolutely. And the cause is, of course, the increase in greenhouse gases, namely carbon dioxide, but also methane, uh, from the burning of fossil fuels. And in my lifetime, when I was born in 1957, uh, we were at 310 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. We are now at 420. So we've added 50% more carbon to the atmosphere uh, in the past 65 years. And that, unfortunately, that rate of increase is not declining as it should. We still are adding way too much, about 100 million tons of CO2 into the atmosphere every single day. And the lifespan of that is centuries. So uh, we have baked in this problem, and we are definitely at the adaptation stage now. Uh, And that's going to mean how do we deal with it? Higher sea levels, stronger storms, more wildfires, all of these things are a result of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And yet we heard politicians in a debate this week extolling the virtues of fossil fuels, which no doubt have lifted societies up. Fossil fuel is a modern miracle. Life without it is cold, dark, and short. But the fact of the matter is, and if you will, the inconvenient truth is that carbon that's added into the atmosphere warms up the planet at a rate that is far faster than we saw in any of the major extinctions in prehistoric times. And, and so we are going to have to deal with this, not just as a state, as a nation, but as a world to come together to stop adding more fossil carbon to the atmosphere. Uh, That's going to be renewable energy. They they talk about carbon sequestration, but the fact of the matter is if you run the numbers, even at a magical level of $100 per ton to sequester carbon, and we're nowhere near that technologically, the cost of that would be trillions of dollars to try and put back that carbon into the ground. The fact of the matter is it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. I'd like to go back to the notion of records. Um, yeah. What, what is the highest temperature ever recorded in Colorado? Well, if you go to the website for Bennett, Colorado, they will brag that it's 118 degrees. And good on Bennett. It's a nice little town out there. I have friends that live in Bennett. But the state climatologist has looked up all of that and said that's not likely a realistic record. So we will defer to 115 degrees at John Martin Dam on July 20th, 2019, beating out a mark of 114 that stood for years at the town of Sedgwick and also in Los Animas. So the hottest temperature is 115. If you want to contrast that, the coldest is 61 below zero up at Maybell, up in the northwest corner of the state. So we have a huge contrast in temperature in Colorado. Will you locate that dam for us where the highest high was recorded? John Martin Dam, southeastern Colorado. I understand a hailstone fell that would break, well, more than records if it hit something. Uh, do, yeah. do, you, you, you probably heard about this hailstone, Mike Nelson. 
I was on the air that day. That was the same day as the Yuma tornado just a couple of weeks ago. And that same supercell thunderstorm produced a massive hailstone, five and a quarter inches in diameter. But part of it melted before they could get it to a freezer at the National Weather Service office in Goodland, Kansas. And so when they got out to actually measure it uh, officially for state records, it came in at 4.6 inches in diameter, which is still really big but nowhere near the biggest hailstone on record for the United States, which fell in July of 2020 in Vivian, South Dakota, and it was eight inches in diameter. Okay, so the largest in Colorado is by no means the largest that has ever fallen. Not even close. The Vivian one would be the size of my head, but ours is at five and a quarter inches. Uh, A question from a listener near Paonia on the Western Slope. Marilyn Stone craves any insight you have into why the skies where she lives are grayer. Uh, Quoting her, it's especially noticeable looking towards the horizon. The air quality index says ozone and particulates are in the green. The only time I can see the iconic blue Colorado skies is at nine or 10,000 feet. What might explain the grayishness? That's a good question. I We have not had a lot of wildfire smoke this year, but we've had some. And uh, across the state, instead of the awful smoke conditions they've had in the Northeast and the Great Lakes, it may be we've had just enough haze this summer from some of the fine particulates from other wildfires in other parts of the country. If not that, it may be that we've snuck back into a slight to moderate drought over the southwestern quarter of the state of Colorado, and there could be some fine dust particles that are in the atmosphere. Mike, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Mike Nelson is chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He joins us monthly to talk about Colorado's weather and climate. We'll be right back with a return to the March on Washington. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A newcomer to Colorado asked Colorado Wonders if the state has waterfalls. Well, we decided to take him on a hike to see for himself. (laughs) That's so incredible. Is this what you expected? Well, yes and no. I've seen waterfalls, but never like in person. I'm Jenna McMurtry. Come with Colorado Wonders on an awe-inspiring waterfall hike. Get recommendations for more and see pictures at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Washington, D.C., August 28, 1963, more than 200,000 people gathered for racial equality. Historians say the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom spurred President Kennedy to initiate a strong federal civil rights bill. Of course, it's also where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. This weekend marks 60 years since the march, and thousands will return for a commemoration. Retired Denver County Court Judge Diane Briscoe will be among them. The trip is special because her mother, Ruth Cousins Denny, attended the 1963 event. Judge Briscoe spoke with my co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. I'm here with Judge Diane Briscoe inside her Southeast Denver home today to learn more about this very special and I'm guessing very emotional journey. Judge Briscoe, thanks for inviting us into your home. You're welcome and thank you for coming and thank you for doing this interview. It's important to me. The 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. 
in some ways that seems like a long time ago and in other ways it feels so recent in terms of American history. Do you agree? It does seem like a long time ago. I was only 13 years old then, but here we are again 60 years later with some of the same issues, which is disturbing. Hmm. Um, And I'm sure my mother would be quite disturbed if she were living to see that the progress that she thought we had made seems to be slipping some, and that's disturbing to me and to, I think, most people that I know. In fact, I don't know anyone that it's not disturbing to of the climate, and I don't mean the heat temperature, but the social climate, the social justice climate that's going on in this country right now. What's in the forefront of your mind as you prepare to travel to D.C.? Well, you know, I've been to Washington, D.C. before to go to the African-American National History Museum. Mm. And at that time, I went to stand near the Lincoln Memorial because I thought I want to stand and look out and see where my mother was in 1963. And now I'm thinking, okay, now I'm going to go there and there's going to be, I don't know how many more people there. In 1963, there were 250,000 people that attended the March on Washington. I don't know if they'll have that kind of crowd or not, but it's just in my mind that I couldn't go when I was 13, but I'm going now. And I hopefully will, I know that I will experience some of what she felt 60 years ago. Hmm. I can imagine you almost have like goosebumps thinking about being in the same place that your mom stood. I do. I know that, you know, I won't experience Martin Luther King, (laughs) but his son, I understand, will be a guest speaker this time around and other guest speakers just like they had 60 years ago. Various civil rights leaders and activists will be speaking. So you're attending the anniversary festivities, primarily taking place Saturday in Washington, D.C., and you have said it's for, quote, the continued need for justice in our country. What issues are top of mind for you when you think about the need for justice in America? Voting. That's a scary thing, that after all these years, some people still don't get the right to vote. And there's different tactics used to keep people from voting. And it's just, it's atrocious after all these years. And here we are still People wondering, am I going to even get to vote in the first place? And then if I do get to vote, is my vote going to count? That's very disturbing. Education is still disturbing. It's what's really disturbing to me right now is the banning of books. And I know as a teacher, my mother would be very disturbed of banning books in elementary school, middle school, and high school, and believing that we're trying to indoctrinate children. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for them not to know the history of this country. It's ridiculous not to let them know. They know. They see black and brown people and Asian people and and Indian people. And they see this country is supposed to be a melting pot. They see it. So why would you try to hide that there are different people and that we don't always treat people equally? It's there. And it's, it's just very disturbing at this time and after all the years of struggle that we're still dealing with these same issues. 
In relation to your statement about the need for justice in our country, what thoughts do you have about that in terms of Colorado? Hmm. Colorado, I think, is seen as a fairly progressive state, and we don't have the same level of problems that many of the other states have. And even at my mother's time, of course, the southern states, and she had said this, the southern states with the demonstrations, you know, you saw people killed, fire hose, dogs on them, and all the violence against people of color who were demonstrating. Whereas in Colorado, when my mother and others and my brother and I were on the picket line, we didn't experience that kind of violence. However, we did experience people yelling and screaming at us and calling us names. And some people did get spit on Hmm. here in Colorado. But the thing back then, and it's probably the same, not just in Colorado, but other places, the bigotry and hatred might not be very out. It's, it's kind of subtle sometimes. It's more subtle, and it was more subtle back then, and it still is. It's subtle, it, but it's there. It's not gone. And for anyone to think that it's gone or to say, I've never, as a person of color, I've never been discriminated against, they have on blindfolds as far as I'm concerned because they're being discriminated against, but they just don't realize it. Somewhere in their life, they're going to be discriminated against, and somebody at some point is going to discriminate against them, and hopefully they will take the blindfold off and see it and try to speak up against it and do something about it. You have said this journey to D.C. is dedicated to your mother, Ruth Cousins Denny, who was very active here in Colorado in the fight for justice and equality for all. Tell us about your mom and the work she did here in Colorado. Okay, she, um, my family moved here in 1951 from St. Louis with the Air Force Finance and Accounting Center, the government agency my father worked for in St. Louis. And they announced in St. Louis that they were going to open up a, a branch of it in Denver, Colorado, and in Indianapolis, Indiana, and that the employees could choose which city and state they wanted to go to. My mother chose Denver because she thought that Denver was a utopia. She thought (laughs) there was no discrimination in Denver. She thought the Purple Mountain's majesty was (laughs) a dream. (laughs) And she was already teaching school, had taught for a couple of years in Missouri. Then she came here, and she couldn't get a teaching job. Wow. And then she went to the theater. This is what really woke her up (laughs) as to what was really going on in Denver. She and a couple of teacher friends went to see a movie in the movie theater. And my mother started to head to the regular seats. And they said, oh, no, 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 you can't sit there. We have to go sit in the peanut gallery. Which was the upstairs. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what? (laughs) She was really surprised. She just had no idea there was discrimination in Denver, even though historically now we know the Ku Klux Klan was very, very active in Colorado and in Denver. But my mother wasn't aware of that, or she may not have picked Denver. Well, I honestly had no idea myself, of course, um, being born and raised in the South, until I went to the exhibit at History Colorado, and they actually had the Klan robes. And I just kind of almost stopped in my tracks when I saw the display, and that was really the first time I had ever been aware of that. Right. A lot of people aren't aware of it, even like you're saying, you didn't know, and a lot of people don't know that the Ku Klux Klan was very, very active in Denver and in Colorado. And we hear a lot now about how the Chinese people were mistreated in in Denver. 
And we know, you know, we know the history of the internment of the Japanese people. And, mm. you know, this country, we're, we're just, we're not kind to people who are different. We're just not kind. And I, that's all I can say. We're, we, we don't have a good record. And I guess that's why some people want books banned, because they don't want people to know that. They want to, no pun intended, whitewash everything. And it's just not a good thing, because what is the saying? If you don't know your history, you will repeat your history. It's not a good thing. Your mom also took part in a lot of protests. Can you tell us about that? She did. She joined and she helped start the Congress of Racial Equality in Denver. She and Jim Reynolds were the initiators of the Congress of Racial Equality chapter in Denver. And they got together a smaller group of people who had the same interest in facing up against inequality in job discrimination, housing discrimination in the Denver metro area. And they started having meetings, deciding, you know, what they were going to do. And um, I remember as a child that they met in, in our home. And they decided to picket King Supers, Safeway, Denver Dry Goods Company, which was bought by the May Company, which is now Macy's, mm. and Zone Cab, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was one of the top cab companies, taxi cab companies in Denver. And so I recall my mother having my brother and I on the picket lines, and I recall being at what then was Stapleton Airport, because that's where we picketed Zone Cab, because that's where they would come and pick people up um, when they got off plane rides. So we picketed out there to discourage people from using Zone Cab. And um, we picketed uh, the other stores because they only would hire people of color to clean the toilets. You know, that kind of work. The maintenance, janitor no, work. No public facing Absolutely positions. not. No clerks, nothing like that. So she and CORE worked hard to get all of that changed, which they did. So you have quite a few mementos and pictures of your mom sprinkled around your mm -hmm. Denver home. Tell us about this beautiful glass, snow globe-like looking sculpture. This is from the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. And she was inducted posthumously in March of 2023. And that was another part of my promise to her to make sure that she was not forgotten. And so this was a very special day for me and a very special day for my family to see that she was inducted and that her name definitely will be in Colorado history. There's a lot of people who would say, you know, it's time to pass the torch to the young people and let them go to the marches and participate and learn. But why was it important for you to physically go to D.C. for this anniversary? Walking in my mother's shoes, I don't feel that I've done the kind of work that she's done. You know, I, of course, came along at, at a different time. But I have done some work and continue to do work. Actually, I'm a co-moderator of the anti-racism committee at my church, Montview Boulevard Presbyterian Church. And we're working hard to dismantle racism in the church. And so I still work on injustice and social justice issues. And so in that way, my life is very much like hers. Well, I would argue that you're being very modest. Um, 
For many, you are described as a trailblazing, retired Denver County court judge. And until recently, there were very few Black women serving on the bench here in Colorado. What are you most proud of in terms of the work that you have been able to accomplish here in Colorado? Mm. I guess um, my legal career, I worked as a Denver city attorney, assistant city attorney, and I initially wanted to work to help children, but I couldn't get a job. There wasn't an opening with the Denver Department of Human Services for abused and neglected children, which is one of the legal sections in the Denver City Attorney's Office. There was no opening, but there was an opening with Denver Airport. Mm. So I became a lawyer for Denver uh, doing airport law at DIA. But then when an opening came up for Denver Department of Human Services to serve abused and neglected children, I applied for it, even though it meant taking a demotion. And I, you know, I, I don't like to necessarily blow my own horn. My mother used to tell me that I needed to do that. But I, I took a demotion because it was that important to me. And people would ask me, they say, why in the world would you take a demotion to do this work and when it's so prestigious to be an airport lawyer? And I said, because it's my calling. I said, and if you don't understand what a calling is, I can't explain it to you. But I've been called to go help these children. And that's what I did. And I loved that work. I absolutely loved that work. And I knew how important it was to have legal help for children who were abused and neglected. That's a very, very important job, uh, calling. So. Then I decided I needed to become a judge, and I actually wanted to become a juvenile court judge, but I wasn't successful in that. And then my dear friend, Dan Muse, who had by then retired from being the city attorney, encouraged me to apply more than once to become a Denver County court judge. And I had given up because I said, you know, I've had the door slammed in my face a couple of times. I don't think I want to do that again. And he said, no, you've got to, you've got to apply. And I did. And then at that time, Mayor Hickenlooper um, appointed me. And I was um, over the moon, so to speak. <laughs> and my first appointment in the court was in the juvenile court. And I thought, I can't believe I get to be a judge and I get to be in a court <laughs> that I, that's my dream, you know, so. but Full circle. Full circle, but we rotate. The Denver County Court rotates into the different courtrooms doing different types of laws. So I didn't, didn't stay in the juvenile court more than two years, and then I rotated into general sessions, and then I rotated eventually into traffic court. We have specialty courts, the sobriety court, which sobriety court was another court that was very important to me um, because these were people who had three-plus DUIs and had to or make a choice to either go to jail um, or get into the sobriety court program. And that program was to help people to reach their sobriety and maintain the sobriety and make amends for their drunk driving. As we wrap up, what do you hope will come out of this trek to D.C.? I hope that nationally that people pay attention to it. I don't know if people will pay as much attention to the March on Washington now as they did 60 years ago. We're in a kind of a different place. 
but I'm hoping people will pay attention to it. I'm hoping they will get something from the speeches and get fired up, as former President Obama would say. <laughs> I'm fired up. So I'm hoping people will get fired up and, and realize we really need to stand up for what's right and stand up for social justice and stand up and make sure people get to vote no matter where they live in this country. It's, it's just appalling that people have to struggle to get to vote. Well, I think it's a safe bet that your mom is really proud of you. I, I think so. I think so. And I'm, I'm indebted to her because I wouldn't be who I am or where I am without her being my mother. Judge Briscoe, thank you. Thank you. Chandra Thomas Whitfield speaking with retired Denver County Court Judge Diane Briscoe at the judge's home in Southeast Denver. Judge Briscoe will march on Washington this weekend, just as her mother, Ruth Cousins Denny, did 60 years ago. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with a poem designed to build bridges. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The criminal cases against former President Trump and his allies are unfolding across the country, but they have a Colorado connection. One of the alleged co-conspirators in state and federal indictments is lawyer John Eastman. Eastman was serving as a visiting scholar at CU when he got involved in efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And he's still playing a role in Colorado politics. Read more about Eastman at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. I Am the Bridge, a poem by all of us, is a work four years in the making. It was conceived of by Papa Ja, a Coloradan from Senegal. He wants to connect people from different backgrounds, Black, Jewish, Hispanic, European, Native American, and Asian. They each contributed lines to the poem. My dream and my goal is to show this country and to show the entire world, when community come together, there's nothing that can stop us. They will perform the poem tomorrow at Denver Botanic Gardens. We'll share it with you now from the debut earlier this month at the Arvada Center. Our history did not begin in chains. I am African rhythms thumping in a breakdance battle in Brooklyn. I am foundational black American, born in the basement of the American dream. A lynch rope for an umbilical cord. Attached to a motherland we've long forgotten. The trauma of my ancestors is embedded in my DNA. So we sang. Our story is wild as a swing dance in Louisiana jazz. Our ancestor spirits carry us and our bones are made of stardust. Surviving the whips, chains, and segregation. Forced to build families and this nation without reparations. The sweat from my brow paved the ground for the red, white, and blue. A star-spangled noose choking the life out of my ancestors. And, and still, still we rise. The blood and bones I carry are rich, and yet they are seen as opposite. I am the people who have been hated, 
feared, misunderstood, and revered. I am the unstoppable, indestructible spirit of human love and resilience. I am unapologetically black in all shades and rhythms. I am the bridge from yesterday's sorrows to a child's hope for tomorrow. We are the immigrants from the home of all humanity. Once a continent with no barriers and borders is still a cradle of hope for all. A land so often spoken of but seldom actually listened to. We, we are Africa. Africa. Six letters that speak to the diversity of its many nations. How can you minimize such a grandeur to such simplistic words, depictions, otherings? North, south, central, east, west, the beauty of the high peaks of Mount Kilimanjaro, to the rolling hills in Cape Town, the waters of the Niger and the vast of the Sahara Desert. This poem is yesterday and tomorrow, celebrating the past, present, and future, our ancestors. This poem is for the weak and strong. It will tell of history. I am the bridge. To a world where the weak coexist with the strong. Until, until we, find we find a world where we all can belong. And speaking of belonging, us Latinos know about how borders can divide. Many have tried to put us down by saying we are unworthy of being here. But what would this country be without us? A mother earth with an empty womb. They want to keep us in the shadows, forgotten in history's tomb. But I am like an eagle crossing the borderless sky. I am mestizo. I am not from here or there. No soy de aquí, ni soy de allá. I am from everywhere. And I would rather die on my feet than to live on my knees. My dream, dream is for unity, justice, and peace amongst all nations, cultures, and creeds. My Jewish faith is about creating a world where we all can breathe in peace, always with an eye, heart, and mind on God's work, the Torah. And the other eye on persecution. Wary, careful, always looking over our shoulders. Are we safe here, and for how long? Fitting into American society, but also not assimilating only as far as society will allow. In the words of the ethics of our fathers, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? But if I am only for myself, then who am I? And, and if, if not, not now, now, when? We are European American. We walk into a room white with a lowercase w and a knapsack filled with privilege. By our bootstraps, we capitalized, we colonized, we consumed and exploited people and earth. We called it freedom. This, this is, is the barrier we will break. The bridge we will build is made of recognition and restoration. Recognition of real justice and universal humanity. Restoration of a true destiny and vision for a common destiny and humanity. The bridge has planks of empathy and action. Empathy, empathy that binds us to each other's, other's lives and, and stories. Action that amplifies the quietest of voices and creates new histories. Understanding where we are so we can see what's ahead. Dismantling, Dismantling the systems that oppress and cause dread. Because we are living courageously and creatively. I am Asian-American, with hair as black as ink and eyes like coal, but everything around us looks light. We are small in stature, but we have hearts the size of giants, breaking stereotypes of the model minority. While building a future for our families. Discipline, hard work, and respect are hallmarks of the Asian community. 
virtues that we share with the very best of humanity. Kamsa Hamnida. What I am today is because of you. And where we are today is on indigenous land. The Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho still sing on the wind. Can you hear them among the roar of the traffic? There's a sound that captivates our ears under the grass, beneath the soil. You have to get close. They, they are, are drums, low and forceful. Like mother's heartbeat, steady, persistent. She calls to her children, remember, remember who you are. Your umbilical cord is your connection to the universe, the sun, the stars, the water, the land your people have walked for time immemorial. We are humanity. Brothers and sisters across water and distance. Here we have found each other. Set aside our fear for friendship. Remember that we are family. Today is a new day to stand together. Foot to, to foot, foot, shoulder to shoulder. To shoulder. In, In beautiful, beautiful colors, colors and, and shades. We, we are the indestructible woven thread. We, we are the bridge to the world of tomorrow. And that is I Am the Bridge, a poem by all of us. It'll be performed Saturday evening at Denver Botanic Gardens, part of an event called Breaking Barriers and Building Bridges. Our thanks to CPR race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie for that audio. The state wants to help professions with dire worker shortages, like law enforcement and teaching. So much so that starting this month, the state will pay for college. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Just graduated from high school? Or maybe you're looking to change careers? Governor Jared Polis says if you're interested in... Education, early childhood education, firefighting, forestry, law enforcement, nursing and construction, a new program called Career Advance Colorado will pay for up to two years of training. All tuition, fees, and course materials will be paid for programs at the state's community and technical colleges, as well as Colorado Mesa University. You can start a fantastic career in two years or less with no training costs. Students can enroll in their community or technical college of choice. Because these schools are open access, they don't require essays, transcripts, or letters of recommendation. Students must also fill out financial aid forms. You can apply and go. Colorado sees 3,700 openings for elementary and secondary educators every year and 4,000 for nurses. Polis says overall, There are two job openings for every unemployed worker. Community colleges will be launching social media campaigns to get the word out. Pikes Peak State College President Lance Bolton says his Colorado Springs College will be targeting a broad swath of people. We really want students coming right out of high school to know about these opportunities. We're really committed to serving adult learners as well who maybe see this as an opportunity to return to college and get into a career field that they may have been thinking about for a long time. He says Pikes Peak has programs in construction, law enforcement, fire science, and early childhood education. Some offer one-year certificates or two-year degrees. Colorado Springs fire and police departments have severe shortages. Beginning officers and firefighters start at around 67 to 69,000 a year. 
Bolton calls the free program a remarkable opportunity. That's something that's really never been on the table or offered to students. If you want to be a teacher or construction worker or firefighter, go to the Colorado Community College System's website. Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And still to come, a sleepover that will take you back in time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. So you'd like to know more about classical music? One way is to look at music through a theme, like animals in classical music. That's a lumbering elephant. Or maybe the theme is music used in Saturday morning cartoons. That's from the cartoon The Wabbit of Seville. I'm Carla Walker. Join me for a new way to look and listen to classical music every weekday at 1030 in the Music Room. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A miner named John Duncan was prospecting in the San Luis Valley when he found gold in Pole Creek. A few years later, around 1880, Duncan put down roots. Now, generations later, you can hike in and spend the night at the cabin Duncan built. And CPR's Dan Boyce did just that. I packed pretty much like I would for a backpacking trip, except I, I, don't, I, I don't need a tent. I don't need a sleeping pad. My name is Matthew Schomburg, a recreation management specialist at Sawatch Ranger District. We've been going there, cleaning it, fixing it up. Are there pillows there? No, sorry, there is okay, no pillows. pillows. Yeah, I need, so yeah. I still need to make yeah, my little camp yeah. pillow. We'll see about Lovely. getting you a pillow and a little mint for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> ah, very funny. I get it. I get it. It's not too hot. It's about maybe 60 degrees, a little bit more. And you start out walking through this sandy trail with the expanse of sagebrush plains to my right and the Sangre de Cristo Mountains reaching up to my left. My name is Price Heiner, and I am the forest archaeologist and uh, heritage program manager for the Rio Grande National Forest. Sometimes you're near an archaeological site or a historic site where it's not even close to the setting, the landscape, the way it was. It's really neat to see it in place, but you kind of lose that sense, that context. You're going to get it there at Duncan. It's super neat. It'd um, just be the same view shed, so to speak. I think the same view shed, the same amount of people there. Like, nobody's out there. It's going to take you a while, you know, a while to get back in there. It was about two hours. Duncan cabin... Circa 1880. I think the only reason his is standing is, like you'll see, it's a very substantially made cabin. He did a good job. So, John Duncan, he's been finding gold. He's built his house. And then, of course, the word got out. And over the next decade or so, people started to gather around his cabin. It became an official town in 1892. The town of... Duncan. There were like 250 people here. About four o'clock, the clouds roll in a feathered wall across the open valley. Grasses dance at the edge of some decrepit fallen structure next to a round horse corral. John Duncan's primitive one-room cabin stands as the lone surviving sentinel of the town which bore his name. 
Around the turn of the century, rancher George Adams purchased a wide swath of land known as the Baca Land Grant in the San Luis Valley. Sitting within it was Duncan, or the, the town, not the man, or probably both. Anyway, Adams set to work. He went out there and did the survey and checked everything out and said, all, all you guys are squatting on my property. And so, of course, they said, no way. We bought these lots. These are ours. And we're a uh, town. I know. And we're a town. <laughs> so they went to, Supreme, went to the Supreme Court, all the way to the Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of George Adams. Duncan residents could either relocate their small homes or they were raised. You can still see the foundations and century-old broken glass. But Adams needed somewhere for his ranch hands to stay. And John Duncan's cabin was so well built. So on it stood. Over the years, the Baca Grant changed hands, broke up, subdivided. Eventually, the Nature Conservancy bought it, and it was given to public lands agencies. For dinner tonight, we have beef stroganoff with noodles. The cabin was restored in 2011. And in late June of this year, reservations to stay in the cabin opened to the public on recreation.gov. It feels like it might have felt as the night darkens and the stars shine brightly. I throw a sleeping bag onto a bunk and make a pillow with my clothes. In the Rio Grande National Forest south of Crestone, Dan Boyce, CPR News. When a novel has a strong sense of place, that place becomes a character of its own. And that is absolutely the case with the book we've chosen to read together. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Go as a River is our latest pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It takes place in Iola, Colorado, which was wiped off the map to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. Go as a River takes place in the years before Iola was evacuated, then inundated. It is also about the displacement of indigenous people in the West. Author Shelley Reed had already begun writing it when in 2018, drought exposed Iola from beneath Blue Mesa Reservoir. And I think it was very painful for the people who had lived there and had been evacuated to see the remnants of the place that they loved reemerge. No one ever thought we would see that again. So pick up a copy of Go as a River by Shelley Reed and then join me on the Western Slope September 13th as I interview her. We'll be on stage at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. Tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. Again, September 13th in Grand Junction, cpr.org slash turn the page for all the details. Thanks for spending time with us and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield, and I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.